Hi everyone. I trust that you've had a good week. I do hope too that you have an opportunity to meet up with a couple of fellow congregation members sometime during this week or even after the service just to chat briefly perhaps about the sermon share a little bit about what's going on in your life and then pray together. It's supposed to be raining in Cape Town so today may not be the best day for that. But I'm hoping that we'll be able to start meeting up together in small groups soon. We come again today to Peter's words in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. We've taken a bit of a detour into a mini-series on marriage. Last time, we had a look at the specific situation that Peter is addressing in these verses, that of Christian wives with unbelieving husbands, and Christian husbands with unbelieving wives. We looked at the particular difficulties that those folk face and the encouragement and challenge that comes from God's word to that situation. But today we're going to have a look at the more general directives that Peter gives to Christian wives and Christian husbands. Please remember that we began our mini-series three weeks ago by looking at the vision for marriage that Peter presents in these verses, And I do encourage you, if you haven't listened to that message yet, to please listen to it before you listen to today's sermon. Because if you look at Peter's instructions without considering his wider vision for marriage, then these instructions could appear to be restrictive and burdensome. Let's look again at what Peter writes. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewellery and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands, like Sarah who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. This is God's Word. Although this is our third sermon on this passage, there's still so much more to look at, so much more that I'd like us to see, but have had to leave out due to time constraints. This is certainly not the last word on this passage, and definitely not the last word on marriage, but I do hope that it will be a helpful word today. Before we have one last look at what Peter has to say here, I think it's very important to note two things that Peter is not addressing. Firstly, Peter is not addressing ministry. He's addressing marriage. Some people want to use these verses to back up their understanding of the role of woman in church, but Peter is not speaking about the church. He's speaking about the home. 
And secondly, Peter is not addressing all women and all men. He is addressing wives and husbands. This is not a command for all women to submit to all men, and we'll get to that sticky word submit in a moment. He is addressing wives and their husbands and the roles and responsibilities of that unique relationship. There are six verses for wives and only one verse for husbands, but then when Paul addresses wives and husbands in Ephesians chapter 5, he gives three verses to wives and nine to husbands. So across scripture it does balance out. Peter begins by giving three instructions to Christian wives. He says that they are to be submissive, to be beautiful, and to be hopeful. I'm indebted to Pastor Chris Wright for this outline. Firstly, be submissive. Verse 1. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. We tend to bristle at this word submit, but if you think about it, we all practice submission in various ways every day. When I travel on an aeroplane, I submit to the commands of the air stewardess. When I go to the dentist, I submit myself to all sorts of barbaric behavior. We're actually practicing submission all the time. When we stand to one side to let someone pass, when we wave another driver to go in front of us. Listening itself is an act of submission. I give up my desire to speak and let you have a turn, and vice versa. For life to run smoothly, we need submission. My will often crosses the will of someone else, and at that point I have a choice. Either I submit or I fight for what I want. To be submissive really means to put someone else's interests above your own. It means to give way. Sometimes it means to give up. And this, in fact, is to take on the character of Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 5, we read that during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. And in Philippians chapter 2, Paul gives us a very vivid picture of what that submission looked like and what it should look like in our own lives. Notice that this command is given to all believers. Paul writes, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death even death on a cross. To be submissive means to be like Jesus. Peter goes on to give the example of Sarah in verse 6. 
the holy women of the past were submissive to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. Other translations say, called him her lord. Just to say that Sarah was talking about Abraham when she called him lord and master, and not to him. You can look it up in Genesis chapter 18. And her submissiveness cannot mean unconditional obedience, because three times in the book of Genesis we have Abraham obeying Sarah. No, this was the cultural way of showing her husband honour. And likewise today, Christian wives are to find culturally appropriate ways of honouring their own husbands, helping him to lead, not belittling him in front of others. But notice, in fact, that honouring is something that Christian husbands are called on to do for their wives in this passage. Again, there's mutuality here. Christian husbands cannot use this idea of submission to suggest that they are in charge and can do what they want. Christian husband, are you insisting that you are the head of the household? Are you interpreting this passage to say that you are Lord and Master? If so, then you need to take a very careful look at what the Bible says in this regard. Remember John chapter 13, the night before Jesus died. We read how he got up from the table, took a bowl of water, and washed his disciples' feet which was the job of the lowest slave. And when he'd finished, he said to his disciples, Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me Master and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. During his ministry, Jesus radically transformed the common understanding of leadership and authority. He says to his disciples in Matthew chapter 20, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. We don't really have time to go into all that the Bible has to say about the roles of husband and wife in marriage, but looking at this passage and the parallel passage in Ephesians chapter 5, we can say that the biblical role of a wife is to be like Jesus in submission and the biblical role of the husband is to be like Jesus in servant leadership. Remember that Peter begins his instructions to both wives and husbands here with the little phrase, in the same way, which takes us back to the example of Jesus in chapter 2. Both husband and wife get to play the part of Jesus in different ways. It reminds me of two little boys who were arguing about who should have the last piece of chocolate cake, and their mum said to them, well, if Jesus were here, he would say, I don't want another piece of cake, thank you. You go ahead and have it. And there was a slight pause before the one little boy said to his brother, Jason, it's your turn to be Jesus. A good marriage is where both husband and wife are acting like Jesus 
in their particular roles. As one Bible commentator puts it, both husband and wife followed Jesus, the suffering servant. Although the husband does not fulfill the same role in relation to his wife as his wife does to him, there is a fundamental identity of attitude. Both are servants of God, seeking to serve the other for Christ's sake. Wives, be submissive. Secondly, Peter instructs Christian wives to be beautiful. I love the fact that Peter words this in a way that presumes that Christian wives are already beautiful. He says in verse 3, Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewellery and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Just to say that this doesn't mean that Christian wives can't wear makeup or get a nice new hairstyle. If you're going to take this verse literally, then you're going to have to say that a Christian wife also shouldn't wear clothes. No, Peter is saying that wives should not think that their beauty consists of such things or depends on such things. Notice that according to Peter, it's possible for wives to get more beautiful as they get older. True beauty is a gentle and quiet spirit. Again, the word of God is not urging all women to be quiet introverts. There's nothing at all wrong with having an outgoing, exuberant personality. In the book of Acts, we're introduced to a Christian couple called Priscilla and Aquila. And it's interesting that Priscilla, the wife, is always named first. Clearly, she had a personality that outshone her husband's. No, a gentle spirit means one that is not always raging and fighting and quarrelsome and difficult. You can certainly be exuberant without being any of those things. Again, gentleness is something that reflects the character of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, I am gentle and humble in heart. Gentleness is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, an evidence of God's Spirit working within us. And gentleness is the way in which Peter urges us to share the gospel. A few verses after this, Peter will say, Always be prepared to give an answer to everybody who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness. As one pastor puts it, Peter is urging Christian wives to model the kind of behavior which is like Christ, which is full of the Holy Spirit, and which commends Christ to others. Where did Peter get his standard for beauty? Well, Peter was a married man, and so I'm guessing that Mrs. Peter must have been a bit like this. But Peter is actually reflecting on some words from the Old Testament. Charm is deceptive, and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Do you remember where those words come from? It's from the description of the godly wife that we get at the end of the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is all about wisdom, and it ends with a description of the supreme example of wisdom, a godly wife. Let me read just some of the verses to you. A wife of noble character who can find... 
She is worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. She selects wool and flax and works with eager hands. She gets up while it is still dark. She provides food for her family and portions for her servant girls. She considers a field and buys it. Out of her earnings she plants a vineyard. She sets about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong for her tasks. She sees that her trading is profitable, and her lamp does not go out at night. Her husband is respected at the city gate, where he takes his seat among the elders of the land. Her children arise and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women do noble things, but you surpass them all. Notice again the mutuality in these verses. This wife brings honour to her husband, and he in turn honours her. And notice too that this lady breaks wide open some of the awful stereotypes of what a Christian wife should look like. She's not at home doing the housework while her husband is at the office. She's involved in real estate deals and trade and business, as well as some of the home tasks. In fact, nowhere does the Bible give instructions for which marriage partner should do which task in the family. Should the wife work outside the home? Should the husband look after the kids and do the washing? Should the husband take care of the finances of the home? Who does the washing up? The Bible is completely silent on these matters. The simplest answer is probably whoever is best at the job should get that job, and different stages of life might require different input from both husband and wife. We've gone a little bit off track here, talking about the duties of husbands and wives in the marriage relationship, but the main point is that wives are to have an inner beauty. They are to be beautiful in their gentle devotion to God and their husbands. Thirdly, Peter instructs Christian wives to be hopeful. Verse 5. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. We've dealt with this a couple of times in the previous sermons on this passage, so just to recap here, Peter is calling Christian wives to have a deep faith and trust in God. He's speaking about making God your most important relationship, finding your identity and security in Him. Again, this is something that all believers are to do. Peter goes on to say in verse 15, But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. And then Peter is calling on wives to trust and entrust difficult situations into God's hands, not taking matters into their own hands, certainly not retaliating or acting in sinful ways, but trusting that God in time will do what is right. So wives, be submissive, be beautiful, and be hopeful. Let's look secondly at what Peter has to say to husbands. We've actually addressed quite a few things to Christian husbands as we've looked at Christian wives, but there are three things that Christian husbands are instructed to do for their wives. Peter says, understand her, honour her, and pray for her. Firstly, understand her. 
The NIV translates verse 7 as, Husbands, in the same way be considerate as you live with your wives. But literally, the text says, Live with her according to knowledge. As Pastor Chris Wright puts it, perhaps the translators of the NIV decided that to translate the verse, Husbands, understand your wives, would have been to create the most difficult command in all of Scripture. But actually, that is the sense here. Live together with your wife with knowledge, with insight, with understanding. See her as a person, as a woman. Know her for who she is. In biblical language, to know your wife was a euphemism for sexual intercourse. It speaks about the most intimate knowledge of your wife. And notice that it is husbands who are urged to understand their wives, to put in the time and effort. And of course, that will mean spending time with her and talking with her. If she isn't so already, you really need to make your wife your best friend. Understand her. Secondly, Peter says, honour her. The NIV uses the word respect, but actually that's not strong enough. Peter is using the same word here that he used earlier in chapter 2, where he told us to honour the king. Verse 7, treat them with honour as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. Notice that Peter sees husbands and wives as being different The words weaker partner in no way suggest inferiority because Peter goes on to call wives heirs together with you of the gracious gift of life. Men and women are equal before God. Peter is simply describing the fact that generally speaking, women are less physically strong than men. There are definitely exceptions to this, and I know of several women who could run laps or cycle laps or swim laps or hike laps around me. Peter is telling us here, though, that women are different. I think there are two mistakes that can be made in relation to what Peter is saying here. The first mistake would be to deny the fact that women and men are different. To me, it's significant that whenever the Bible addresses husbands and wives, here and in Ephesians and Colossians, both parties are addressed, but they're not given the same instructions. Wives aren't told to love their husbands. Husbands aren't told to submit to their wives. The Bible sees men and women as being different. Equal, yes. The same, no. In their book, The Meaning of Marriage, Tim and Kathy Keller point out that there have been a couple of articles recently that have shown how men and women do the same tasks differently. Men and women lead companies differently. Men and women conduct orchestras differently. And that's very significant. As they say, men and women are not interchangeable unisex beings, but they have different strengths that result in men and women solving problems, building consensus, and performing leadership functions in distinct ways. That's what the Bible says in these verses. And that is something to recognize and celebrate and honour. Otherwise, women can in fact lose their identity and decide that they have to become just like men. Kathy Keller puts it this way, 
sadly, those who most deny innate differences between men and women may end up devaluing women at the very point where they are trying to protect them. Dominant, swaggering and sinful male behaviour is assumed to be the default mode if one wishes to get ahead or be taken seriously in the world. Women are asked to shed their feminine qualities and become artificial men in order to be one of the boys. So it's a mistake to deny the difference. But a second mistake would be to see difference in terms of inferiority. Peter speaks here about the weaker partner. In our world, when we hear the word weak, we tend to think in terms of inferiority. But the Bible reverses that. In God's eyes, what is weaker is in fact even more precious and honourable. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, for example, Paul says that God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Weakness doesn't mean inferiority, it just means different. And different does not mean better or worse, it just means different. Men and women are different, we can't understand each other, and due to human sinfulness, what we can't understand, we tend to despise and consider to be inferior. Kathy Keller puts it this way in her book, Marriage in the biblical view, though, addresses the chasm between the sexes. Marriage is a full embrace of the other sex. We accept and yet struggle with the gendered otherness of our spouse, and in the process we grow and flourish in ways otherwise impossible. I have had homosexual friends, both men and women, tell me that one of the factors that made homosexual love attractive to them was how much easier it was than dealing with someone of a different sex. I have no doubt that this is true. A person of one's own sex is not as likely to have as much otherness to embrace. But God's plan for married couples involves embracing the otherness to make us unified, and that can only happen between a man and a woman. Gender difference is actually a beautiful gift that God has given to us. Often when I find myself in a difficult situation, I think to myself, what would Michelle do in this situation? As a man, knowing a woman intimately gives me access to a whole range of tools that I wouldn't normally or naturally have. I often joke and say that I wear two Christian wristbands. The one says, what would Jesus do? And the other one says, what would my wife do? Really, these first two instructions that Peter gives to Christian husbands, understand her, honour her, should be kept together. Husbands are to get to know and understand their wives and then to honour them for who they are as women. In fact, Christian men should honour Christian women for who they are as women, not to ridicule or belittle or look down on them because they are different, but to celebrate the very things that do make them different. Understand her, honour her, and then thirdly, Peter says, pray with her. 
Treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. The you here is plural, so it seems that Peter expects that husbands and wives will be praying together, and if husbands are not living with their wives according to knowledge and not respecting them, then God is not going to be listening to their prayers. Bishop Festo Kavengia was the Anglican Archbishop in Uganda, and he used to tell how one time he was going off to preach, but he'd just had an argument with his wife. And as he was going off to preach, he felt the Holy Spirit prompting him and saying, you should go back and pray with your wife. But he found himself arguing with the Holy Spirit and saying, hold on a moment, I've got to be preaching in 20 minutes. So he said to the Holy Spirit, look, I'll go and preach first, and then I'll come back and pray with my wife. And he felt the Holy Spirit saying, Okay, you go off and preach, and I'll stay here with your wife. That's an amusing story, but actually Peter ends this section with a very strong warning to Christian husbands. And I think that this is where we will end our sermon too. Perhaps this may not be the best note on which to end, but this is vitally important, and it needs to be said. In preparing for this sermon, one woman writer that I read said this, We should not dismiss or make light of the horrible record of abuse suffered by women at the hands of men who wielded twisted and unbiblical definitions of headship and submission as their primary weapon. The church should not overlook or minimize one iota of that suffering. And I'm not going to do that today. Perhaps there are some ladies listening to this sermon and your husband is demanding that you submit to him and do what he says based on this passage or other passages like it. I want you to know that that is not biblical submission. Rather, it's subjugation and God hates it. And while you may still love and forgive your husband, you should seek help from a fellow Christian sister. And perhaps there are Christian husbands listening to this sermon and you're using this text or other New Testament texts as an excuse to belittle or abuse or dominate or exploit women in general or your wife in particular. Then in fact you are living in disobedience to the word of God. You are living as an enemy of God and he is not listening to your prayers. And you need to seek forgiveness from God forgiveness from your wife, and you should seek some help from a fellow Christian brother. Wives and husbands. Wives, be submissive. Be beautiful. Be hopeful. Husbands, understand her. Honour her. Pray with and for her. Amen.